This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up can be really bad for you in the long run and have some terrible consequences. And this isn't a conspiracy theory. The more you let things build up, the more of a toll it can take on your mental health. I know for me, in dealing with some traumatic events in my life, I had the tendency to think, well, they've already happened. I'm okay. Other people have it worse. It doesn't matter much. And through therapy, was really able to understand how those events impacted me and changed how I'd start to see the world in ways that weren't great and were sometimes making my life worse. So therapy or dealing with any traumatic events you've had might really help you in terms of how you can live in the present moment now. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also really easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash conspiracy. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. The NBA playoffs are here, and we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even the speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA Playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. I am sitting here at my desk today in October, longing for someone to hug me and encourage me to keep strong and hold my head high. This particular phase in my life is the most dangerous. My husband is planning an accident in my car, brake failure and serious head injury, in order to make the path clear. Those are the words of Diana Spencer, Princess of Wales, in a 1996 letter to her butler, Paul Burrell. Four years later, Diana died in a car accident. Conspiracy? Maybe. Coincidence? Maybe. Complicated? Absolutely. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, the podcast where we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. If you want to listen to previous episodes, you can find them on your favorite podcast directory or on our website, parcast.com. I'm Carter Roy. I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded skeptical and curious. Don't get us wrong, sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. Today, we're talking about the death of Princess Diana. Officially, she died in a car accident in Paris in 1997. Her driver was under the influence, the paparazzi were chasing them, and she wasn't wearing a seatbelt. A series of apparent coincidences concluded in tragedy. But that's not the only story of how Diana died. As much as I hate to say it, 
Diana is most famous for the man she married, Prince Charles of Wales, current heir to the British crown. They were married for a tumultuous 15 years, had two sons, Princes William and Harry, and were in the media constantly. Constantly. We can't stress that enough. As soon as the royal engagement was announced in February of 1981, Diana was never able to leave the spotlight again. Think about everything you've heard about Meghan Markle recently and amplify it by 10, because Diana was going to be queen. Unfortunately, she suffered this public attention without ever ascending the throne. And the attention didn't diminish even slightly when she and Prince Charles divorced in 1996. Because Diana died just one year later. Just after midnight on August 31, 1997, the Mercedes S280 carrying Diana crashed into the 13th pillar of Paris's Pont de Lama Tunnel. Diana's lover, Dodi Fayed, and their driver, Henri Paul, died immediately. Diana died from her injuries, namely a torn pulmonary vein and displaced heart, four hours later. Her bodyguard, Trevor Reese Jones, was the crash's sole survivor. Her sons, William and Harry, were only 15 and 12 at the time. It was a tragedy. But many people believe it wasn't an accident. Before we jump headfirst into conspiracy theories, we need some context. First, the commonly accepted history leading up to the crash, and then the official version of what happened to Princess Diana that night in 1997. But before that, I want to provide a quick aside on conspiracy theories and why they interest us. Conspiracy theories hinge on a concept called agenticity. Agenticity is how a person looks at a series of events, finds a pattern, and assumes it means something. This is convenient if, say, you break out in hives whenever you eat watermelon, so you assume that means you're allergic to watermelon, and stop eating it, avoiding another outbreak of hives. But it's less convenient given that life is random. We don't have an obvious explanation for everything. So how do we find meaning? Historically, humans find meaning through stories and storytelling. If something doesn't make sense, we create a story to explain it. Think about ancient folklore, which proposed solutions for the mysteries of life. People need answers, and if they don't get a satisfying answer, they create a narrative that aligns with the facts they have. When creating these stories and searching for solutions, many people like to use Occam's razor, the concept that the simplest answer to a question is the correct one. But we know the truth, even when everyone takes it for a fact, can be complicated. Especially when that true story doesn't comply with agenticity and follow a logical, understandable sequence of events. To put it in movie critic terms, sometimes there are plot holes in the truth. And real-life plot holes are open to be filled with conspiracy theories, creating new and intriguing stories. We love stories, which is why we're excited to dive in, regardless of the lines between fact and fiction, which, in this podcast, may get a little blurry. In general, we don't believe the Earth is flat, lizard people run the government, or NASA faked the moon landing. But we do believe that those are fascinating ideas, and the stories around them are worth telling. But hey, we'll keep an open mind. And at the end of this, we might think Kubrick's greatest film starred Neil Armstrong. Or that Princess Diana was killed by MI6. Speaking of... Exactly what I was thinking. The most important person in this story is Diana herself. 
Before we go into detail about how she became a princess fearful for her life and then famous for her death, we want to humanize her. There's a lot of negativity surrounding her death and why people wanted to kill her. So first, a few nice things about Princess Diana, a lady in her own right, the people's princess and grandmother of adorable Prince George and Princess Charlotte. We think she would have been a wonderful, warm, and loving grandmother. For all the flaws the media and the royal family found in her, no one could deny Diana was great with children. She worked as a nanny and then a kindergarten teacher before she married Prince Charles. Her own children recalled her as loving, with a great sense of humor. For example, when Prince William was about 13, he had posters of supermodels on his bedroom walls, Naomi Campbell, Christy Turlington, and Claudia Schiffer. Is this one of those royals? They're just like us stories. Not at all. When William came home from school one day, he discovered the models from his posters were in his home. Living, breathing, Naomi Campbell, Christy Turlington, and Claudia Schiffer smiled and waved at him. William was speechless. For Diana, it was hilarious. That's a fantastic prank. Well, despite their connections, Diana tried to keep her kids grounded. She made them wait in line like all the other kids when they made trips to Disney World and McDonald's. And that's not the only reason she got the nickname the People's Princess. In 1987, at the height of the AIDS pandemic, patients were treated like lepers. It was commonly assumed that making skin-to-skin contact with an AIDS patient would get you sick. When Diana learned this information was, in fact, false, she shook hands with an AIDS patient without wearing gloves. And like everything Diana did, it was photographed. She knew it would be photographed and used her celebrity status to single-handedly break down some of the stigma against AIDS. With a simple handshake, she humanized this patient and others suffering from AIDS. Diana knew a human touch was important and helped bring life to the sometimes frigid royal family. She frequently wrote personal thank-you notes, which were described as effusive and touching. For these, she kept a memo sheet of hard-to-spell words prominently on her desk. She was going to get the details right. Diana loved romance novels, and when she first came into the public eye, she looked like a stunning heroine in one of her beloved Barbara Cartland novels. And while that's the image the royal family wanted everyone to see, it wasn't the truth. If Diana was in a romance novel, she wouldn't be the heroine. She'd be the rival in the exciting tale of Camilla Shand. Better known as Camilla Parker Bowles, or Camilla, the Duchess of Cornwall. Yes, the next major players in this story are Diana's ex-husband, Prince Charles, and his current wife, Duchess Camilla. To understand their involvement, we have to go back to the 1970s and the story of how Princess Diana became Princess of Wales. In his youth, Prince Charles was a bit of a playboy, not unlike his son, Prince Harry. He was romantically linked to over 40 women before marrying, and that's just what's public knowledge. When a big part of your job description is finding the future Queen of England and producing heirs, it makes sense to consider your options but we don't think that's what was going on. In 1970, when Charles was in his early 20s, his ex-girlfriend introduced him to Camilla. There was an instant spark, and the pair soon started dating, often going to polo matches. They both loved the countryside and horses. But the relationship faced many obstacles. Camilla had unfinished business with her on-again, off-again boyfriend, 
Andrew Parker Bowles. And Charles' family did not approve of Camilla. No, they did not. Per tradition, the royal family expected Charles to marry a beautiful, virginal woman, preferably with noble status. A tomboy, Camilla was not believed to be a great beauty. She had the history with Andrew Parker Bowles, and though she was from the upper class and had some noble blood, she had no title. Lucky for her, Charles loved her, and love conquers all. But in this case, love took some time to conquer. In 1973, Prince Charles shipped off with the Royal Navy. Because Camilla wasn't the girl his parents wanted him to marry, or perhaps because he didn't expect her to move on in his eight-month absence, Charles didn't ask Camilla to wait for him. So Camilla reconnected with her old flame, Andrew. Camilla's savvy parents seized this opportunity to do what they believed was best for their daughter. They put out a newspaper announcement saying Andrew Parker Bowles had proposed to Camilla. He'd done no such thing. However, decorum was still very important among the British upper class in the 1970s. To avoid shame, Andrew was forced to propose to Camilla and she was forced to accept. They married a few months later in what was called the Society Wedding of the Year. It's said that when Charles learned of the engagement, he cried all night. But he had no power to change the situation. He had to act like a prince and keep his emotions in check. So Camilla and Charles remained friends. Which, as to be expected, didn't work. By 1980, Camilla was cheating on her husband with Charles. Though, to be fair, Andrew was cheating on Camilla as well. Over the years, Prince Charles faced mounting parental pressure to marry just the right girl. He was heir to the throne. He had a duty to his family and country. He was over 30, and he needed a wife. In 1977, he'd found a seemingly solid option in Lady Sarah Spencer, daughter of the Earl Spencer, Viscount of Althorpe. In addition to owning a country estate and a home in London, the Spencers could trace their lineage back to England's Stuart monarchs in the 1400s, as well as other European noble houses, including the Habsburgs and Medicis. Charles and Sarah's relationship didn't work out, but through Sarah, he met her teenage sister, Lady Diana. As a noble from one of the Wright families, Diana had actually been a childhood playmate of Charles's younger brothers, Princes Andrew and Edward, back in the 60s. But due to their 13-year age gap, Diana and Charles weren't introduced at that time. In 1980, when Diana was of legal age, she and Charles reconnected at a polo match. At 18, she had no romantic history, a high-ranking noble title, and undeniable beauty. For the royals, she seemed perfect. So, Charles married her. And he married her fast. They saw each other 13 times between reconnecting at that polo match in 1980 and the televised fairy tale wedding on July 29th, 1981. It was like The Bachelor on steroids. Like most Bachelor franchise relationships, it was a mess. Because, like many Bachelor contestants, Diana came with baggage. When she was a young girl, her mother left. Her parents were divorced by the time Diana was seven. A few years later, Diana's father remarried, which might have been fine, but he remarried in secret and didn't inform any of his children he was taking a new wife until the ink was dry. Diana felt betrayed by both parents. She longed for a strong, loving family, and she became terrified of the idea that she might one day get a divorce too. 
And prior to meeting Prince Charles, Diana joked that she wanted to marry him because the royals were famously averse to divorce, and Charles was the only man who could never divorce her. Ironic. And it didn't help that Diana was only 20 when she married 32-year-old Charles. She wasn't ready for this monumental decision or the incredible life she was thrust into, but she so greatly desired a family who would never leave her that she jumped into marriage. The choice would define the rest of her short life. Our story will continue in a moment. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you solve the world's biggest mysteries or take on alien life. At least, not the ones you're thinking of. But they can help take care of pesky invaders in your home. Like the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, and the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of bug it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. And with over 95 years of experience, it's no wonder they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. The NBA playoffs are here. And we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch. Because this is the turn it up to 11 NBA playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. After the break. And now, back to conspiracy theories. In their wedding photos, Prince Charles and Princess Diana are the picture of a fairy tale happily ever after. But this picture quickly shattered. Just a few months into marriage, Diana got pregnant doing her royal duty. But she became paranoid, worrying that Charles had lost interest in her. Do you think he didn't seem interested in Diana because he was still madly in love with Camilla and wished he'd married her? It seems possible. There could have been other factors in play, too. Remember Diana's history of feeling abandoned? And don't forget, she was going through hormonal changes. Recent studies led by neuroscientist Elsaline Hochzema in Europe show that pregnant women's brains develop a better ability to understand other people's thoughts, feelings, and intentions. The increase in emotional intelligence as a result of pregnancy may have led Diana to realize that Charles never liked her much in the first place. Interesting. Regardless of the cause, in less than a year, the prince and princess's relationship was falling to pieces. Diana later claimed that she threw herself down the stairs while pregnant to get Charles' attention. Obviously, that didn't improve things. Luckily, the fall didn't hurt the baby, and Prince William was born in June of 1982. Harry followed in September of 1984. Apparently, Charles was openly disappointed that Harry wasn't a girl and that he'd inherited red hair from Diana's side of the family. If that wasn't enough to stoke the feud's fire, around this time, Diana learned that Charles had rekindled his affair with Camilla, if it ever stopped. Diana was reasonably upset, and to make things worse, she began suffering from an eating disorder and self-harming. By 1986, Diana started having affairs of her own. 
For about five years, she secretly rendezvoused with her riding instructor, Army officer James Hewitt. And by 1989, she was spending time with car dealer James Gilby. Gilby later became infamous as part of Squidgygate. When a tape of Diana and Gilby's amorous phone conversation was released to the public in 1992. Well, that moment was a boiling point in the years-long public feud dubbed the War of the Waleses. In the early 1990s, news of Charles and Diana's failed marriage surfaced in the tabloids. But instead of hiding or denying it, both Diana and Charles used the media against each other to gain public sympathy. Diana was an expert at manipulating the media. During her tenure as Princess of Wales, she befriended journalists, winning their favor by providing news tips. One such writer was Andrew Morton. In the early 1990s, while still married to Charles, Diana collaborated with him on the book Diana, Her True Story, which revealed the darker side of royal life. The book details her bulimia, her suicide attempts, and the pain caused by her husband's affair. To take it from Diana herself, she was miserable. Publishing a tell-all was her revenge on the family who'd chosen her just because she looked the part of a perfect, spotless princess. Diana did play that part to a degree, She refused to be identified as Morton's source for the book, claiming innocence while still a member of the royal family. In fact, many people accused Morton of making most of his book up, until years later when he revealed his recorded interviews with Diana. The story was straight from her mouth. Diana wanted the story told, but she was smart enough to ensure the royal vitriol would fall on someone else. Diana's connections and control over the media makes you wonder, were the paparazzi following Diana the day she died because she tipped them off on her location? Or had she merely opened a floodgate she was unable to close? It's certainly suspicious that she was known for using the media and journalists were so present at her death. But it's important to note that Charles was using the media as a weapon too. And sometimes the paparazzi worked against Diana. Remember Squidgygate that I mentioned earlier? In August of 1992, The Sun revealed they had a recorded phone conversation between Diana and her lover, James Gilby. In the recording, Gilby affectionately called Diana Squidgy, so the scandal became known as Squidgygate. This was, of course, not at all acceptable royal behavior. Diana was treading hot water. But in January 1993, just a few months later, Charles was found guilty of the same crime when an even more scandalous recording of the Prince of Wales and Camilla became public. That became known as Camillagate, or more colorfully, Tampaxgate. Essentially, Prince Charles was so eager to get away from Diana and near Camilla that in this recorded phone conversation, he expressed a disturbing wish to be Camilla's tampon. Oof. That kind of sentiment makes you wonder how far he'd go to be with Camilla. The man seems desperate. Or he just didn't know how to clearly express his feelings. Up to this point, the British family was famously unemotional. Once, Queen Elizabeth came home from a months-long trip and greeted young Prince Charles with a handshake. But thanks in part to Diana, the royals were embroiled in emotional scandal. She brought them down to earth and then a little farther. Diana was a problem for them, and they needed to get rid of her. That sounds ominous. Ah, 
All I'm doing is pointing out a motive for their 1992 separation. Shortly after the Squidgygate and Tampaxgate leaks, Charles and Diana publicly split. The royal family claimed the pair was trying to work it out, but that seems unlikely. In this very public breakup, the media had access to everything and Diana had no escape. So, of course, she tried to keep them under her sway. In 1995, Diana gave a scathing tell-all TV interview to Martin Bashir, further fueling the fire between the couple since she and Charles were still legally married. Later that year, things were so bad that the Queen officially ordered Charles and Diana to get a divorce. This, more so than any journalist story or comment from the prince, actually seemed to scare Diana. As much as she seemed to dislike being married to Charles, she adored William and Harry and feared that she'd lose them if the divorce agreement didn't favor her. So at first, she resisted. Some of the most powerful people in the world wanted to control her kids. Of course she resisted. I think anyone would. Though, in Diana's case, it meant she held even less favor with the Queen. The divorce proceedings were contentious. Finally, on August 28, 1996, Diana and Charles officially divorced. Well, you'd think things would settle down when Diana was no longer Her Royal Highness, but just over a year later, Diana mysteriously died. Though Charles and Diana divorced in August of 1996, the royal family couldn't escape her. First off, she was the mother of future King Prince William and his brother Prince Harry. As she had since 1992, Diana maintained a residence in Kensington Palace and saw her children on alternating holidays. She lost the honorific Her Royal Highness, but maintained the title Princess of Wales. Diana received a lump sum of approximately 35 million modern American dollars and a smaller annual sum to maintain her royal office as mother of Princes William and Harry. Between that, living in a palace, and continuing a public life, Diana was hardly done living like a royal. She was even allowed to keep the royal jewels she'd been gifted. You can imagine how this could have irritated the traditionalists in the royal family, including the queen herself. A large part of being a royal is public appearances. But after the separation, Diana announced she'd retire from them. She needed a break from the spotlight. Hmm. If I were her, I'd never want to leave my house again. She had all the reason to quietly fade away, but she knew that would be letting the world down. Diana couldn't just leave her life of official appearances, fundraisers, and charity work. Soon, Diana was back to using her star power for good. In 1996 and 1997, she worked with the international campaign to ban landmines. Specifically, Diana worked with NGOs that focused on removing unexploded landmines from former war zones. One such war zone was Angola, a country that had faced about two decades of civil war and now had fields full of landmines. These bombs were just waiting to go off. And when they did, people would be horribly maimed or killed. Diana was especially interested in removing landmines so parents wouldn't be killed and taken from their children, a cause near and dear to her heart, since she'd felt like she lost both of her parents as a child. Diana even appeared in a television special on the subject in January 1997. She urged countries to put an international ban on landmines. As you'd expect, landmine manufacturers and others profiting from a military-industrial complex were not happy with Diana's work. 
She made sympathetic videos to create an emotional appeal. In these videos, Diana's caring face comforted victims who were missing limbs, and her soft arms held landmine orphans. She made landmines an evil, along with those who profited from them. Diana's activism helped the campaign make quick progress. Just a few months after her death, the work of the international campaign to ban landmines was awarded a Nobel Peace Prize. And in 1999, the UN's Ottawa Treaty banning landmines became international law. Unfortunately, Diana didn't live to see the success. Had being a public face of the movement made her a target? It's not impossible. One last thing before we recount the events that led to Diana's death. We have to address her love life. Over 1996 and 1997, Diana dated Hasnat Khan, a Muslim Pakistani heart surgeon. Normally, we wouldn't care what religion Diana's boyfriend was, but in this case, it's very important to note that Hasnat Khan, with whom Diana was madly in love with for about two years, was Muslim. Apparently, Dr. Khan loved Diana back, but he did not love her global fame and the constant publicity, and this caused conflict in their relationship. Sources disagree on how and why they broke up in July of 1997, because Hasnot himself has given multiple reasons. But most recently, during the 2008 inquest into Diana's death, he testified Diana dumped him for another man, Dodi Fayed. The man she was with when she died. Who, notably for many conspiracy theorists, including Dodi's own father, was also Muslim. Dodi's another important piece of the story. The son of an Egyptian business magnate, Dodi was heir to the Herod's luxury department store fortune and a movie producer on films, including Chariots of Fire and Hook. Notably, Dodi's billionaire father, Mohammed Fayed, owned the Jonacle yacht and the Paris Ritz, two of the last places Diana was seen alive. Regardless of which story you believe, the Al-Fayed family was undoubtedly involved in Diana's death. I'm not saying they wished her any harm or actively killed her, but considering Diana died in an Al-Fayed car, driven by an Al-Fayed employee, traveling between two Al-Fayed properties while on vacation with Dodi Fayed, who died next to her, well, if she dated someone else, would Princess Diana be alive today? If you believe some of the conspiracy theories, she'd have died anyways. True. I'm just pointing out the pattern. You know, agenticity. Right. In July 1997, Diana struck up a relationship with Doty, and they spent most of the next six weeks together sailing the Mediterranean, even at one point joined by her sons. The paparazzi followed, as always, getting prime pictures of swimsuit-clad Diana enjoying her vacation and kissing Doty. These photos confirmed the relationship, but brought about minor scandal, since Doty had, as far as the wider world knew, been engaged to Calvin Klein model Kelly Fisher. But here he was, kissing Princess Diana. And everyone knew. The day the photos came out, Doty called Kelly and broke off their engagement. Divorced from Prince Charles and oceans away from the royal family, Diana was still making headlines, and not the most positive ones in the eyes of the royal family. Even better for the tabloids, on August 30th, Diana told her press contacts to prepare for an announcement the following day. A dark irony. There would be an announcement that day. The announcement that the Princess of Wales had died. 
We'll return to our story in just a moment from the ParCast Network. And now, back to our story. On August 30th, 1997, Diana Spencer, Princess of Wales, was 36 years old, had been divorced for a year and two days, and had been seeing Dodi Fayad for about six weeks. They'd sailed the Mediterranean together for the past nine days. Diana hadn't seen her children in a month, but looked forward to reuniting with them the next day. The following account of August 30th and 31st, 1997, is what is widely accepted as fact. That morning, Diana woke up in the luxurious Jonical yacht moored outside Sardinia. She had breakfast with Dodie aboard the yacht, and by 11.30 a.m., they had left the boat for the mainland, planning to fly Dodie's private jet to Paris. At about 3.20 p.m., they landed at France's Le Bourget Airport. In Paris, Dodie made the odd choice of showing off the home his father was renting and renovating, Villa Windsor. What's odd about that? They'd been staying on the Al-Fayed yacht, and he later took her to the Al-Fayed-owned Paris Ritz and the Al-Fayed Paris apartment. It's not odd that he wanted to show off his wealth. It's odd because Villa Windsor was once home of disgraced former royal King Edward VIII and his twice-divorced American wife, Wallace Simpson. At that point in the 1930s, divorce was so frowned upon that Edward had to give up his crown to marry Wallace. He spent most of the rest of his life living in France in the Bahamas. This same royal distaste for divorce and divorced people cast its long shadow on Charles and Diana and factored into them spending so many years unhappily married. As you could imagine, this was an eerie, there's no escape kind of afternoon for disgraced, divorced royal Diana. Though it didn't last long. Mm-hmm. That evening, Diana had a hair appointment, and Dodie had plans to go to Raposi Jewelers and pick up a diamond ring he'd had altered. The ring was from Raposi's Tell Me Yes collection. An engagement ring, perhaps? No one can confirm what Dodie's intentions for the ring were. What we can confirm is that Diana wore a ring from Dodie that night, but not the Tell Me Yes ring. The two reunited at the Ritz, the one owned by the Fayads, and rested in the Imperial Suite before going to Dodie's apartment to get ready for dinner. Seems odd that they would stop at the Ritz instead of just reuniting at the apartment, since the apartment was only ten minutes away from the Ritz. It is odd, but I think Dodie was showing off again here. He wanted to impress Diana, and for a former member of the British royal family, the bar is high. If you're keeping track, that's four Al-Fayed properties Diana's been inside in one day. The yacht, the jet, Villa Windsor, the Ritz. But they were back at the Ritz later that night. Why show it off in the afternoon? They weren't planning to return to the Ritz after the afternoon visit. Oh, that changes things. It does. At the apartment, Diana had one last phone call with her children, who were at Balmoral Castle with their father and the Queen. After checking on the kids, Diana and Dodie attempted dinner at Michelin-starred Chez Benoit. However, there were too many paparazzi, so they elected to return to the Ritz to dine. Quite a bit of driving that day. Uh, Dodie's apartment and Chez Benoit are each only about 10 minutes from the Paris Ritz, so it wasn't as bad as you'd think. Oh, okay. Not long after Diana and Dodie arrived at the Ritz, diners in the hotel restaurant spotted Diana crying. Interesting. Like she sensed tragedy was barreling toward her. Do you think she thought she was in danger? Maybe. 
Or maybe she was just having a rough day. Either way, the Ritz's restaurant had too many paparazzi too, so Diana and Dodie ended up having dinner in a suite. Meanwhile at the bar, off-duty Ritz head of security Henri Paul drank at least two glasses of a drink that appeared to be fruit juice, but was later revealed to be Ricard, a French liqueur stronger than wine. However, he did not appear drunk to anyone who interacted with him. That's because he wasn't just drunk, but mixing drugs. Henri was taking antidepressants Prozac and Teopride, but they counteracted some of the effects of the alcohol, hiding how drunk he truly was. So when Dodi Fayad roped Henri Paul into a plan to avoid the paparazzi, no one batted an eye. Apparently, Dodi concocted a scheme to leave the Ritz unnoticed. He set up a decoy Mercedes with his official driver and bodyguards leaving out of the hotel's front door, making a big deal about the exit so all of the press would follow that car. In the meantime, a smaller Mercedes S280, driven by Henri Paul, would transport Dodie, Diana, and just one bodyguard, Trevor Reese Jones. If Dodie's plan worked out, Dodie and Diana could travel back to Dodie's apartment in peace. Maybe they were done being photographed at the end of a long day, or maybe it had something to do with Diana's tears over dinner. Either way, Henri Paul, who never normally drove the Fayads, was driving the couple home. Driving wasn't in Henri Paul's job description, and he wasn't even supposed to be working at that time. It's definitely suspicious. What's worse is that Dodie's plan failed. It did. Here's where we get to the official version of Diana's death. This is a story determined to be factual by police inquest and accepted as the truth by the mainstream public. Shortly after midnight, Diana, Dodie, Trevor Reese Jones, and Henri Paul get into the Mercedes S280. Within minutes, the paparazzi realize where the princess is, and 10 journalists in five cars, two motorbikes, and three scooters follow their car, taking photos. In one photo of the exit, Henri looks drunk, Trevor looks worried, and Diana is turned away to avoid the camera. Dodie isn't pictured, but we know from the police reports that neither he nor Diana buckled their seatbelts. At Dodie's request, the car takes an indirect route to the apartment. To avoid being photographed, they drive along the Seine, taking the Cour Albert 1 road towards the Pont de l'Alma tunnel. Over the previous 15 years, the tunnel had seen 34 crashes, resulting in 8 deaths. Not an unusually high number, but a precedent for danger. Lord Stevens, former chief of Scotland Yard, later used a computer model to prove that Henri Paul lost control of the car along the Cour Albert 1 before even entering the tunnel. Between 12.22 and 12.23 a.m. on Sunday, August 31, 1997, the car descends steeply downhill into the Pont de l'Alma tunnel. The Mercedes carrying the princess flies deep underground, unstoppable. Entering the four-lane passage, the darkness gets darker. Pillars line the center between the two directions of traffic, and tiny lights expose the low concrete ceiling. It's a 31-mile-per-hour zone, but the Mercedes speeds in at about 65 miles per hour. With a crunch, the Mercedes S280 minorly hits a white Fiat Uno and swerves. The car jerks left right, back and forth. Veering forward, it smashes into the 13th pillar. The front crumples like a paper airplane. The impact instantly kills Dodie and Henri. Airbags puff open, 
The car's horn jams, blaring endlessly. Passengers toss around as the car spins, scraping away from the pillar. With a crash, the back of the car lands against the tunnel wall. Paparazzi screech to a halt. It's over. Less than five minutes have passed since they left the Ritz. Some paparazzi get expensive, exclusive shots, but those with a shred of decency rush to help the victims and call the police. The first emergency call comes in at 12.26 a.m., about three minutes after the crash. Within minutes of the crash, Dr. Frederick Mollier, who just happened to be passing by, stops to help. He notes that Diana has few external injuries, just a low pulse and a gash on her forehead. Considering this led to her death, you'd think Diana would look worse. You'd think. At 12.30 a.m., the cops show up to investigate. 12.32 a.m., rescue workers arrive, noting that Diana is conscious but agitated and appears only mildly injured. 12.33 a.m., firefighters cut Diana out of the car. The shock of being moved puts Diana into cardiac arrest. 12.40 a.m., French rescue workers attempt to stabilize the Princess of Wales. Stabilizing an injured victim before moving them from the scene of an accident is standard practice in France, though this move was later heavily criticized by Brits and Americans who believe she should have been rushed to the hospital immediately. It's one more thing people put suspicion on. Would Diana have lived if the car crashed in England or if France had different protocols? But remember, at this point, she doesn't appear gravely injured, especially now that her heart's beating again. When a French doctor arrives at 12.45 a.m., he gives Diana hypnovel and fentanyl to calm her down. Notably, this combination of drugs sometimes causes heart and respiratory problems. And more notably, at 1 a.m., Diana has a heart attack. She receives CPR for 18 minutes. Once she's stable, the rescue workers seek permission to take Diana to Pitié-Salpêtrière Hospital. It's not the closest hospital, but they believe it's the best equipped to handle her medical needs. Another 10 minutes pass as they wait for approval to take her to the hospital. At 1.41 a.m., over an hour after the crash, Diana is finally en route to the hospital. The doctors urge the ambulance to drive slowly, afraid speed will worsen Diana's condition. Her blood pressure drops even lower, and at one point they stop completely to try to care for her. Diana doesn't make it to the hospital, which is only 3.5 miles from the Pont de Lama tunnel, until 2.06 a.m. Shortly after her arrival, her heart stops again. The doctors attempt to resuscitate her and realize she's bleeding internally. In the crash, Diana's heart shifted to the right side of her chest. Her pulmonary vein and pericardium tore, causing immense bleeding and explaining her low blood pressure observed at the scene of the crash. The doctors do everything in their power to bring Diana back, but at 4 a.m., she's declared dead. Goodbye, England's rose. May you ever grow in our hearts. You were the grace that placed itself where lives were torn apart. The Princess of Wales was no more.
No one has held that title since. Though horribly injured, Trevor Reese Jones was the sole survivor. Unfortunately, his head injury prevented him from recalling many details of the night. The only true witness, and he has an unreliable memory. Seems fishy. Not considering the damage done to the car's other passengers. Hmm. Though the paparazzi chasing the car were initially blamed for the death of the most photographed woman in the world, they were eventually cleared. French authorities put together a 6,800-page dossier on the accident, which was reviewed by Scotland Yard as well. Autopsies discovered that Henri Paul's blood alcohol content was 1.74 grams per liter, more than three times the French legal driving limit of 0.5 grams per liter. After a two-year investigation, it was determined that high speed, drunk driving, and not wearing a seatbelt killed Princess Diana. Some say she would have survived if the Mercedes hit the tunnel's wall first and not a pillar, or if she'd been wearing a seatbelt. Most people agree that it was pure bad luck. Princess Diana died in a tragic, accidental car crash. Or so we think. Here are three major theories claiming otherwise. We aren't immediately endorsing these theories, just presenting them. Theory number one. Diana's work as an activist against landmines meant she was killed to protect the military-industrial complex. Theory number two. Diana faked her own death to finally escape the public eye. Theory number three. She was a threat to the British monarchy and assassinated by MI6. Theory number three is the most complex theory, with iterations focusing on Islamophobia, the royal family's inability to control a woman intrinsically tied to their public image, or Charles simply needing her out of the way so he could finally marry Camilla. Right. Remember that letter from the top of the episode, where Diana worried her husband would arrange her death? I remember. And I also know that letter goes on to say, quote, My husband is planning an accident in my car brake failure and serious head injury in order to make the path clear for him to marry Tiggy. Camilla is nothing but a decoy, so we were all being used by the man in every sense of the word. End quote. Tiggy. Tiggy. The letter betrays Diana's true paranoia and reveals a much more complicated situation than Charles wanting to make way for his mistress. Even more complicated, the case was reinvestigated just a few years later, with Operation Paget starting in 2004. Next week, we'll discuss. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. If you want to hear more Conspiracy Theories, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or your favorite podcast directory. If you like what you hear, leave a five-star review. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. And don't forget to subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and on Twitter at Parcast Network. Let us know what your favorite theory is. Join us next week as we continue our second look at the death of Princess Diana. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Conspiracy Theories is written by Maggie Admire and stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy.